The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Megan O'Rourke, Slate's culture critic, and welcome to our audio book club. Today we're discussing Evelyn Waugh's Bride's Head Revisited, which has just been made into a major motion picture. Joining me today are Katie Royfe, a Slate contributor and NYU professor, and Troy Patterson, Slate's television critic. Thanks for coming in. Morning. So, Bride's Head Revisited, a book that is somewhat anomalous, we might say, in Evelyn Waugh's career, or perhaps not, a book that sharply divided critics at the time it was published and, and until now, I think, and a book that I had never read before, although I've read a lot of other Evelyn Waugh books. So I just wanted to start there with what did you, what are your overall opinions of the book and how do you see, I know Troy that you've read a lot of Evelyn Waugh, how do you see this book fitting into the context of his career? On that score, I am with, uh, I'm with Martin Amos who calls it um, sort of a problem comedy, likening it to Mansfield Park. Uh, I'm quoting Amos now, uh, worrying, inordinate, self-conscious, a book that steps out of genre and never really looks at home with its putative author. I love Waugh. Uh, <coughs> I think, w- will we agree that he's the greatest comic novelist of the 20th century? I love him for his comedy, for the keenness of his ear and dialogue. No one's ever written sort of dialogue like this, I think, that evokes characters and pins them down. Uh, jokes are so deeply embedded to spring back. Characterization in Waugh frequently is strictly a matter of dialogue, and I appreciate that. Um, and so I know him as the cruel, vicious, cold, beautiful, marvelous comic novelist of scoop, of vile bodies, of a handful of dust. Brides had revisited some call his most loved book it's perhaps also his most hated. It's certainly his most sentimental. It is this odd child. Definitely an odd child. I mean, I, I like Troy, I, I know the law of scoop, vile bodies, and a handful of dust best. And in fact, I read those books when I was much too young to understand them. And I just thought, this man is mean sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, but this book is a very strange book. I mean, it's, it's in three parts, three separate books within the larger book, a kind of tripartite structure. Originally, it was published in two parts. And it would be interesting to actually go back and look at that version. The version we read is an edited version, a version that he cut down in 1959, or for publication in 1959 and that apparently has cut many passages of sort of flights of fancy and weighty editorializing and um, kind of waxing enthusiastic about wine and and other things. I mean, he he describes in the preface that we have um, to the book, I have the edition that, the Everyman's Library edition that is kind of merchandised for the movie. (laughs) So, but in that preface they have, um, there's a quote from Waugh saying that you know, he wrote the book during the World War II at a time of privation, and so there's a kind of gluttony to the book and a kind of. I think it's also know. it's um, it is kind of interesting to think about this book a little bit as a war novel, yeah. which it is, yeah. um, and it begins with uh, the main character Charles Ryder coming to this kind of majestic ancestral home Brides had visited accidentally in his capacity as an officer in the war. And in some way, what Troy is calling sentimentality, which I don't totally agree with because I think it's much more complicated than that, the golden glow of the past is seen from the point of view of this 
this beautiful old house having now turned into this military barracks. And it's about the loss of a certain kind of Edwardian, you know, and and post-Edwardian England. Uh, And I think that that I think the character of Charles Ryder is much darker and, you know, there's something deeply nihilistic and sort of dark in this book that that belies. I think it's easy to say, oh, yes, it's sentimental, but I think it's I do think it's much more complicated than that. What you say about the Edwardian, he also talks when when Ryder is stationed at the house, he also mentions that um, the house might have been torn down were it not for the war, that there's a kind of irony that the the war in some ways kept these houses alive. So if we weren't going to say, if we're going to put sentimentality on hold for a moment, we should come back to that. Would you call it nostalgic at least? I mean, is there a nostalgia that you would say is infusing the book? Or do you not even Yes, I think nostalgic? so. I mean, th- it's complicated in a lot of different levels. I mean, even when um, Charles Ryder and Sebastian Flight, the two main characters of the book, are at Oxford, they are already part of a world that is falling apart, that is threatened. And you already feel all the way through the book um, when they go away for the, you know, they spend this idyllic summer in this country home and um, drink champagne and have this idea, you know, this moment together, it's already threatened. There's already a definite sense of threat. So the nostalgia is for a world that's already lost. I think it, it also says something complicated about being young and about the relationships you have when you're young. And there's a line, uh, Sebastian's younger sister says, love doesn't exist in the past tense, which is clearly meant ironically, which is clearly part of this book is about the forgetting and the betrayal and the moving on from people we have loved or from people who no longer function in the world. And I think that there's something kind of brutal about it, actually, when you look at this message, which really is almost the opposite of love doesn't exist in the past tense. Well, I want to tell us more about why you think it's sentimental, and maybe we can kind of root it more and, and we can talk a little bit more about what happens over the course of the book and what the the structure here is. May I begin by agreeing with Katie and sort of saying that uh, there is a sort of layered nostalgia to the book. First, sort of a nostalgia for youth. And then book one here is titled Et in Arcadia Ego, a sort of a, a mourning for a fallen world, both the simplicity and beauty and languor of late adolescence and the uh, sort of world of an English aristocracy that Waugh, snobbishly to some minds, felt was falling into the past. But before we begin squabbling about all that, maybe we should talk about the plot a little bit. Let's talk about the plot a little bit. I mean, so we have Charles Ryder, whom Katie mentioned, who is our narrator um, and who is a member of the English aristocracy um, in some sense, but not not no. quite. No, 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 he's not. He's not. Okay, I was confused about that because at first I was like, he's, he's not. He's from but then a he's, sort of good family. Yes, yeah, so I should have said from the upper class. He's not. Uh, right, 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 right. He's, right. he's, he's say, upper right, middle right. class. He's but upper middle class, middle. but not aristocracy, right? But then there is the actual aristocracy, which he has a kind of longing for, um, sort of the same way that. Well, I don't know, as many people would have a longing for the, the, the kind of golden lights of whatever the social scene were, right? So we have him, and, and he's the first book is set at Oxford, where he befriends Sebastian Flight, yeah, a rather um, flighty young teddy bear-toting gentleman. Exactly. Uh, at Oxford in 1923, our hero, the, the book is subtitled <laughs> The Sacred and Profane Memories of Captain Charles Ryder. He goes up to Oxford, where he meets, first by rumor, Sebastian Flight, uh, the second son of a of an aristocratic English family, uh, importantly, a, a family of Catholic aristocrats, sort of uh, cuts a dandyish figure across campus, uh, sort of 
toting a teddy bear, keeping uh, outlandish company. He's uh, very beautiful, too. He has a kind of, he's all of the Grecian beauty of youth, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, strikingly beautiful. Sebastian and Charles meet cute when Sebastian vomits inside of <laughs> Charles' uh, dorm room window. To uh, make up for this, Sebastian sends flowers. Uh, you know, it, it would seem acres and acres of flowers get stuffed into this common room. And the two hit it off. We are to understand, although the book only makes the um, sort of mildest nods in the direction that this relationship is romantic. And so romantic, though not sexual, I think. I think. Uh, I wondered. I, it's a little let's ambiguous. Let's talk about that. I have, yeah. Well, we'll we'll come back to it. Yeah, I have yeah. I have no doubt that the relationship is sexual, not least. Yeah. It, you know, I I think that man on man sex is sort of uh, rather common in and probably still is in in uh, British public schools. Yeah. Um, I think that maybe slightly <laughs> a stereotype. But yes, go on. Um, <laughs> in any event. Um, Charles admires Sebastian and sort of gets drawn into the world of Sebastian and his family, uh, uh, the whole family being sort of – there's a general air of dissolution about things. The parents are not together. Um, The father, Lord Marchmain, having um, had an affair with a dancing girl and decamped for Italy, uh, the mother being Catholic will not give him a divorce. Uh, Sebastian has three siblings. There's an older brother named Brideshead who is very dull, very earnest, very pious. His uh, great hobby is collecting matchbooks. Sebastian has two younger sisters, the older of whom, Julia, is uh, resembles him closely and who later in the book Charles will fall in love and have an affair with. And then there's a, a baby sister, Cordelia, who is... Uh, as pious as Brideshead, but uh, quite a bit sharper and uh, more tart as a child. And both Sebastian and, and Julia have fall, are, are describe themselves as heathens at one point or something like that. They have a more ambiguous relationship to the church. Right. The only thing I would interject to that is that it is a Catholic family, but it's a recently Catholic family, right? Isn't the mother... The father... Right, I'm saying the mother asks the father to convert, basically. So his line was not, in fact, Catholic, and they have been converted to Catholicism by the, the matriarchal figure. Yes. Uh, but importantly, it's uh, such beliefs have been instilled in all the children. Absolutely. The action really gets going once uh, sort of Sebastian's youthful uh, drinking and debauchery develops into uh, sort of outrageous dipsomania, sort of three-day-long drunks and uh, stealing from his friends. And Sebastian ultimately ends up in a kind of self-exile. Mm-hmm. And then, um, basically, Charles is left to f- pick up the pieces and create his own life. And, and Charles has been forever touched, we feel, by his relationship with Sebastian, but more importantly, by his encounter with the Marchmain family. And um, he becomes – one interesting strain in the book is Sebastian – I mean, um, excuse me, Charles's vocation, which proves to be architectural painting, which we can talk about in a little bit because that's a, sort of a fascinating strain of the book, I thought. But um, as Troy said, right, he ends up falling in love with Julia and having an affair that is ultimately um, an affair of thwarted passion, as Cordelia calls it. But um, But one – thing that this sort of strange tripartite structure has um, is that near the end of the book, Sebastian is now 10 years, I mean, um, 
Charles is now 10 years older, sort of by the end, and then in the epilogue, 20 years older. There's quite a bit of time goes by. Um, Troy, you may have the chronology more accurately. You're making a funny face. Is it is it 15 years? I mean, by, by the time that he and Julia... Well, there's there's sort of a couple jumps. That right. 10 years pass. Is, uh, and, right, within the context of the book, and then the epilogue is yeah. 20. Uh, 10 years pass before uh, Charles and Julia reconnect, right. and then uh, there's a conversation that catches us up on the two years that they've right. spent uh, having this open affair. Right. Right. And then in the very epilogue, we're back in 1945, I believe. No, not, I guess it's not 45. It's in the 1940s. It's, we're in the middle of the war. Right. And it's England. We're in the early 1940s. Right. right. And, you know, just to, we were talking about before, kind of how youth is a sort of um, touchstone in the book. And, and, and Troy, you mentioned sentimentality. So I thought I would just read very quickly a passage on page 69, which epitomizes a certain kind of strain in the book of self-consciously romantic prose that Wall talks about a bit in the preface to the book that he wrote later, it sort of doesn't always sit that that well with the, with the other parts of the book that are more typical of his kind of caustic satire and a sort of aims of verisimilitude, but I thought we could just get a taste of this. So on page 69 of the Everyman edition, chapter four begins, the languor of youth, how unique and quintessential it is, exclamation point. How quickly, how irrecoverably lost. The zest, the generous affections, the illusions, the despair, all the traditional attributes of youth, all save this, come and go with us through life. These things are a part of life itself, but languor, the relaxation of yet unwearied sinews, the mind sequestered and self-regarding, that belongs to youth alone and dies with it. Perhaps in the mansions of limbo, the heroes enjoy some such compensation for their loss of the beatific vision. Perhaps the beatific vision itself has some remote kinship with this lowly experience. I, at any rate, believed myself very near heaven during those languid days at Brideshead. One thing that runs through the book is this very is this kind of um, cosmo- cosmological language of heaven and passion and suffering and you know thwarted passion and um, one of the central tensions in the book is that Charles is not a Catholic and he early on the the family decides the mother of the family says oh we must convert Charles he must become a Catholic and Waugh himself described the book as being about the kind of operations of divine grace on this what he called a diverse cast of characters and just to kind of delve more deeply into the you know, what we think of the book and questions of sentimentality. I mean, there are kind of two different things going on in this book. I, when I read more about the book afterward, it seemed to me that Waugh had a certain kind of idea for the book, which had to do with this, op- you know, anatomizing this operation of divine grace, showing the, the actions of grace, showing how religion, how belief and how faith affected these characters. But then there were a whole, on the kind of level of what was actually happening in the book and what was often the most to me as a reader, the most engaging moments, these themes were more memory, you know, loss, youth, um, love, different kinds of love and the, the privations of love and questions about kind of, you know, how one's sense of the one's patrimony kind of become sort of shrivel up and how, and also, you know, lost ambitions. And I just wondered what... You guys thought about right. Those I mean, I think you're right. I think one can also look at the uh, religion to me as partly about family, 
Um, in a way, this is a story about Lady Marchmain, who is this sort of very complicated, charismatic, and si- almost sinister character, but also sort of tragic. Um, and she's one of the, char- the more complicated characters in the book. Um, and it's about her influence on her different children. And Sebastian kind of poignantly is trying to run away from his family. He says to Charles, I don't want to introduce you to them. I don't want you to meet any of them because they'll take you in. And then he's right. Charles yeah. does get taken in yeah. by the family. And so all of the characters in their own way are trying to evade this family and end up not being able to evade this family. And so I think in a way the religion uh, and the religious themes are part of that story, which is this family saga about – which is, again, another part of this idea of youth, right. which is how do you get away from your family and how you never really get away from your family. And, to- um, and they're sort of trapped. And the yeah. religion is in a way the ultimate expression of this – um, family's ethos. Yeah. I mean, did you find that completely fully drawn? Like, there were times in the book where I was like, okay, I'm reading a costume drama. You know, there were times when I felt everyone so elaborately garbed and all of the details so laid out. But but I love that scene where Sebastian is, you know, they go, he brings Charles home for the first time and he's just getting more and more anxious and he has to flee and Charles is completely baffled by it. And that seems really, you know, you, you see that this is a character who just, it's like the Brideshead Castle is like kryptonite for him. You know, it's like the closer he goes, the more un-Sebastian-like he becomes in some sense. But then what what happens over the course of the book? I mean, does it, did, did you feel that you get a really clear sense of what what it is about this family other than the Catholicism that is so poisonous for Sebastian? I think it's, it's, it's a very complicated question because in a way it's about what's poisonous about any family. Right. And it's about <laughs> the... Um, it's the very magnetism and closeness right. and intensity and sort right. of this pressure to be extraordinary in this family that, um, you know, is it poisonous? Is there something so terrible about Lady Marchmain? I mean, we have different characters giving different perspectives on whether she's evil, whether she's innocent, whether she's a saint, whether she's, you know, and what what she really is, is probably just sort of an ordinary woman. Right. And what's so poisonous about, about a family, when you look at this book, it's really much of its most charismatic pages are rooted in adolescence. And in adolescence, all families are poisonous. And all families are dangerous in that way. So um, developing and, identity. Yeah. Of the and they're seductive yeah. and they're powerful. Yeah. And yeah. everything everything in life is staked on evading that seduction and that power. Yeah. And so I think that this story is about that less than something specific about this family, although obviously it's a very complicated structure. Um, and, and, you know, she, Lady Marchmain, there's the suggestion, drove her husband away drives all the people she loves away with this kind of with her charm, with her um, closeness, with her insistence on and love, you know, sort of smothering love. Fine points. But what I would point to is a rather extraordinary monologue uh, that uh, is delivered by one Anthony Blanche, mm-hmm. um, a, a most extraordinary character, um, flamboyant, bitchy uh, and an estate. A, a high estate. <laughs> um, it comes right up to the edge of being a, well, I mean, no, I mean, he is a sort of a camp figure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, in, 
to my mind, in a way, in, in a book that's very much concerned with aesthetics and good art and bad art, whether Waugh intended it or not, sort of the, the secular conscience of the novel. He's certainly the aesthetic conscience of the novel, it seems. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So there's a scene in uh, chapter two of book one. Anthony, this is at Oxford, uh, Anthony, a fellow student, takes our hero out to lunch and proceeds to gossip most viciously uh, about Sebastian and his family. Uh, So here we are on page 46, Anthony Blanche with his affected stammer uh, dishing uh, on Sebastian's family. Anthony had lost his stammer in the deep waters of his old romance. It came floating back to him momentarily with the coffee and the liqueurs. Real green chartreuse made before the expulsion of the monks. There are five distinct tastes as it trickles over the tongue. It is like swallowing a spectrum. Do you wish Sebastian was with us? Of course you do. Do I? I wonder. How our thoughts do run on that little bundle of charm, to be sure. I think you must be mesmerizing me, Charles. I bring you here at very considerable expense, my dear, simply to talk about myself, and I find I... And I find I talk of no one except Sebastian. It's odd because there's really no mystery about him except how he came to be born of such a very sinister family. I forget if you know his family. Now there, my dear, is a subject for the poet, for the poet of the future, who must also be a psychoanalyst, and perhaps a diabolist, too. I don't suppose he'll ever let you meet them. He's far too clever. They're all charming, of course, and quite, quite gruesome. Do you ever feel there's something a teeny bit gruesome about Sebastian? No? Perhaps I imagine it. It's simply that he looks so like the rest of them, sometimes. There's Brideshead, who's something archaic, out of a cave that's been sealed for centuries. He has the face as though an Aztec sculpture had attempted a portrait of Sebastian. He's a learned bigot, a ceremonious barbarian, a snowbound llama. (laughs) Well, anything you like. But not Julia. Oh, not Lady Julia. She is one thing only, Renaissance tragedy. You know what she looks like? Uh, Who could help it? Her photograph appears as regularly in the illustrated papers as the advertisements for Beecham's pills. A face of flawless Florentine quattrocento beauty. Almost anyone else with those looks would have been tempted to become artistic. Not Lady Julia. She's as smart as, well, as smart as Stephanie. Nothing greeny yallery about her. So gay, so correct, so unaffected. Dogs and children love her. Other girls love her. My dear, she's a fiend. A passionless, acquisitive, intriguing, ruthless killer. I wonder if she's incestuous. I doubt it. All she wants is power. There ought to be an inquisition especially set up to burn her. There's another sister, too, I believe, in the schoolroom. Nothing is known of her yet, except that her governess went mad and drowned herself not long ago. I'm sure she's abominable. So you see, there's very little left for poor Sebastian to do except be sweet and charming. It's when one gets to the parents that a bottomless pit opens. My dear, such a pair... That's the version, that's the 19, 1944 yeah, that's version, version, which is oh. great to hear because it's way more over the top than the version that, yes. that we have, which is itself over the top. One of my very favorite descriptions, and this is the passage you just read from Troy is really one of the knockout passages in the book. And um, I, it had been about 10 years since I had read any Wa, And, you know, you get to this passage and you just think, this is Evelyn Waugh at his best. I mean, this is just what you were saying when we kicked off the discussion, the absolute characterization and the movement of the plot through dialogue. You know, I thought, wow, if I taught writing, 
and people didn't know how to write dialogue, this is the book that I would, the first book of this tripartite, you know, um, book is what I would give them because the dialogue is just so pitch perfect and absolutely verging on caricaturish or over the top, but not, you know, but but never quite going all the way there. And um, this, he is a campy figure, this, this, this Anthony, but one of his, um, one of my favorite descriptions comes a little bit later when he's describing Lord Marchman. He says, well, a little fleshy, perhaps, but very handsome, a magnifico, a voluptuary, Byronic, bored, infectiously slothful, not at all the sort of man you would expect to see easily put down, which is just, you know, right away, you have this complete sense of who of who Lord Marchmain is long before we get to him and his kind of Italian, decadent Italian digs. And Waugh doesn't have to do the characterization through stepping back, kind of laboriously setting it all out. It's just there through conversation. But yes, why did you want to read us this passage? Gotcha. Well, I, I, you know, I might first mention that, uh, uh, so I suppose I'm reading from the 1944 edition, which you can uh, buy in a uh, bookshop. Uh, there's a handsome uh, edition by Back Bay Books. I would also say that uh, Frank Kermode in the introduction to uh, this Everyman's Library edition, the 1959 edition, summarizes the changes as um, Waz having uh, cut out the grosser passages, mm-hmm. trimming, trimming some nostalgic accounts of luxurious eating and drinking, and also instances of uh, what Connor Cruz O'Brien, in an essay that mildly upset Waugh, referred to as elegiac afflatus. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my favorite. Uh, I read you that by way of indicating uh, sort of some of the the richness of this book, uh, which for good and sometimes for ill is, uh, you know, unlike anything else in, in Waugh's body of work, uh, and also by way of trying to um, begin groping and crawling towards some understanding of this peculiar family and um, what's wrong with them. I worry that partly what's wrong with them is that they've been um, made to become actors in uh, this drama about um, the grace of a Catholic God that mm-hmm. I cannot entirely swallow. Yes, I share that worry. I thought that the book, you know, if, if we're just talking as readers, you know, I, the first half of this book had a kind of momentum and quality of observation um, through passages like this, through dialogue, through through the moment when Julia is bringing Charles to the home and Sebastian has broken a tiny bone in his foot and he can't bear to be bored and alone. So he summons Charles sort of peremptorily from London and Charles is all too happy to, to come along and, and be his, you know, sort of entertain Sebastian. And there's a moment where Julia, you know, asks Sebastian to light a cigarette and he, I mean, um, asks Charles to light a cigarette and passes it to, he passes it to her and there's this kind of little sexual charge. And there are just all these moments like that of intense characterization and sense of what a family, the different characters in a family are like and how they play out these mini dramas with one another. But you do, I did end up feeling that they become pieces on a chessboard about, in this sort of game that's being played out about Waugh turning the tables on Charles, the agnostic, and in such a way that Charles goes from seeming like the person who knows everything, who has a kind of informed skepticism about the superstitious beliefs of these strange Catholics and their God, and ends up as he intimates at the very beginning of the book and then more and more foreshadows as the book progresses, becoming a believer himself, because I think that is what happens to Charles. Uh, indeed, and we're 
I think we're meant to be left with the idea that you know the the book's told in this frame, and that 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 part of um, that uh, the large part of uh, Charles Ryder's uh, unhappiness as he's um, uh, a British officer looking back at um, his beautiful youth is that he hasn't let God into his life. Uh, it's 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 worth pointing out, by the way, that this is that um, you know while. Wasn't interested in any sort of like dialogue or skepticism in these matters. He converted to Catholicism right, in 1930 exactly. after the dissolution of his first marriage, and he himself sort of um, acted much as Julia does at the end of the book. Julia insists on having a um, the last rites performed for her father, and I believe Wa himself did that for a friend of his who was a writer. And you know, kind of right as you say, there was not he didn't want a dialogue. He was profoundly concerned about hell and um, about salvation and, and a, believer, a, a believer. Again, I, I mean, I, I agree with you that the Catholicism to me is not as interesting as other things in the book. Um, I think Waugh, like his friend Graham Greene, had a slightly complicated relation to religion in that, not that he wasn't a believer, but that he had a very sophisticated way of using the idea of religion, um, especially in his novels. And I think that what the religion means in this novel, it, you know, in a way it's, it's about unhappiness. It's about not being able to live in the world. None of these religious characters end up happy. There's Cordelia, who sort of becomes this spinster-like nurse figure. There's Julia, who has to live alone because she can't be married within the church. There's um, Lady Marchmain, who lives alone. There's, I mean, pretty much everybody. Um, Sebastian, who becomes an alcoholic and goes off to live in this sort of monastery in Morocco. And there's no... There's not really happiness in this religion. It's sort of like earthly suffering. Well, I, um, I, I, and I, don't see... I think that it's partly. I think he's using it in a way that that what this religion means um, has something to do with not being able to live in the world. Uh, yeah, but there's something. Uh, uh, these people have the sort of the the, the pleasure of uh, a certain kind of martyrdom, then, don't they? Uh, they may not be able to sort of live in this world, but it's a fallen world anyway. And they believe, and I believe that Wa believes, that heaven exists and they get to go to it. It is one of the strange things reading the novel, if you are, I mean, I come from a Catholic family, but I'm not myself a devout Catholic. But it is one of the strange things reading the book, because you, you begin with the perspective of the agnostic, and then there is, in some ways, this transformation. At the very end of the book, one of the ways that we know Charles has become something of a believer is that when he's revisiting Brideshead as a... Um, you know, in the in the army, he goes to he he moves through the house, which is a fallen, which is now the kind of symbolic um, edifice of the fallen world. The house itself is fallen and sort of decrepit in certain ways, and has been, you know, it's beautiful Art Nouveau sculptures and various other things have been sort of pushed aside to make room for commanding officers and so forth. But at one point, he goes to the chapel and he. He falls to his knees, and um, there's a light burning in the house. The house itself is is in shambles, but there is still a lamp burning in the chapel. 
talk about symbolism. He says, there was one part of the house I had not yet visited, and I went there now. The chapel showed no ill effects of its long neglect. The Art Nouveau paint was as fresh and bright as ever. The Art Nouveau lamp burned once more before the altar. I said a prayer, an ancient, newly learned form of words, and left, turning toward the camp. And I think that's the moment where we are to find to believe that, you know, he's falling to his knees to pray, you know, or to say the catechism or, or offer up something. But what's very strange about it is that, I mean, what's strange for me reading the novel is that they have the pleasure of their martyrdom, but that might seem like an incomplete pleasure to many readers. I mean, it, it seemed an incomplete pleasure to me. It also seemed um, just on a very basic level in terms of um, exposition, sort of hasty. Um, there was something kind of like the first part is so completely drawn and at the end everything just kind of started to get hastier and hastier and I had the feeling of Waugh looking at his calendar realizing he had to get back to his position in the army kind of wrapping up (laughs) maybe unfair maybe this is where I think actually in terms of the way time passes yeah um, it might be useful to think of a book like To the Lighthouse right where which also has the destruction of a house, right. um, which also has these three different sections working in different ways. But part of the suddenness and the abruptness and the way that he uses time, I think, in this book is something he's saying about how about experience loss. time. Yes, yeah, no, about absolutely. loss and That's how things change in a way. I mean, part of what this yeah. novel is about is like the irrevocable change, yeah. both in who we are and in what happened and what it means to us and all that, and the and the sort of incredibly disorienting, painful way that that occurs in yeah. life. And I think in a way that suddenness, Julia, suddenly like, wait, my father died, now I can never see you again. Right. Um, even though it's sort of, sort of convenient narratively, which might be what you're objecting to, mm-hmm. it also has, there's something real about it in, the way, in what realism. he's doing with time. I, I totally I think. agree. And he's doing something interesting with time here. In that, in the way that he, I mean, even in that passage Troy was talking about where he does the two years, he skips suddenly to, it's two years later, and they spent this, I, they had this affair. It's yeah. st- it it creates a sort, it says something about what that affair means and how yeah. it works. And, I totally know. buy that. And actually a book that it made me think of um, th- or was Tender as the Night, which also has this kind of incredible limpidity at the opening, you know, and then... And then, um, you know, you, you sort of feel I mean, I think that book is more flawed and structurally, perhaps, than than this is on the face of it. But it also it is. I mean, I, I, I buy that. I mean, there is something about the kind of languors and longness of youth and the intense recollections of college and then the kind of foreshortened. But the other th- reason I wanted to read that passage about the chapel is that one thing that's so striking about this book and Troy touched on it earlier is that it's not. It's not just a book about whatever Wall might have said about it being about the operation of divine grace. It's clearly also a book about art, right? And I mean, even in that passage, it's this, you know, description of the Art Nouveau lamp. And a lot of the passages early on and throughout are about what we make of art, um, the exchanges, you know, and what, 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 whether Charles is an artist or not, whether well, he has the guts to kind of artist, become an right? artist, and, right? And, and, and between him and Anthony, there's this ongoing I think fight that's about great that. Yeah. Is that he's a mediocre artist right. and that his own confrontation with his mediocrity is this sort of fierce thing that comes up throughout the book. Yeah. And there is that great scene, um, with, again, with Anthony at the end of the book, which we've sort of referred to, where he's been an architecture painter um, in England. Charles, where has, Charles yeah. has all his life and he's very successful. He writes these sort of nice English books about country houses. Right. And then all of a sudden he goes to Latin America and he tries to do this wild thing and do this sort of wild architecture. And he comes back and everybody says, it's it's much deeper. He's become a real artist. And Anthony says, oh, no, it's just traditional English charm playing with tigers. Right. 
Um, and it's such a great moment because, and Charles to, says he's right, right, you know, who knows he's right. He's like, I right. think you're right. right. Um, and there's this sort of, and again, this is why what I keep going back to, which I think really does save this book from sentimentality, is that's part of the darkness. Yeah. The way that Charles is constantly undercutting himself into this yeah. un- impossible nihilistic position where he doesn't yeah. even believe in like his own art or his own, well, you know, and there's and, something about that that I find so interesting. It's so modern and it's also, um, what it does is complicate all these stories. Yeah. Like, as you say, it is much more complicated than a story about divine grace. And yeah. even the scene at the end where he, in the chapel, I think you can't read as totally redemptive just given the book oh, that's sure. come before. That it's sort of this moment where he's like, I'm homeless. I have no love. I have nothing. You know, the passage that comes before, he says, I'm homeless. I have no childless. I have no <laughs> love. I'm loveless. And, you know, it's sort of like... Then he he passes by and they're giving out potatoes and they're like giving right. out boiled baked potatoes or whatever it is in the army and it's sort of a it's pretty cold comfort that end except that then he sees the light and he he sort of feels the glow of of something upon him and the other person says oh you look so cheerful today you know there is this kind of slightly creaky you know twisting into place of some realization at the end I I did think but just to go back to to that what you we were just saying Katie I mean. I think that um, one of the things that, that what you were talking about, this darkness or this nihilism that I kept thinking about with some of the discussions about art and some of Charles's strange feeling of being an outsider was about Waugh's own feelings of being an outsider as a Catholic. And that there's actually something quite Catholic about this book in certain ways that have nothing to do with theology, right, that have to do with more a kind of strain of of kind of ritualistic sadism and sort of intensities of shading and feeling and those were the most interesting parts to me the non-theological kind of you know aesthetic catholicism we might right. call it yeah know, like the where sebastian of it and the, there's just yeah. these jokes early on that are and anthony is a version of it i mean that kind of campiness of anthony is in some ways like a very extreme ritualized figure and and he makes these anthony is always making these jokes about kind of the, the sexual appetites of people and the sort of darker needs the darker needs that people have they're talking about burgundy wine early on and he sort of says to Charles oh I know all about your needs or something and there's some real undercurrent of kind of um, of um, of appetite and longing for something that that's coded aesthetically in, in this way that I found really interesting right. a lot but, of the sort of um, this idea is original me but a lot of the rhythms of the prose are sort of liturgical in a way yeah. as well yeah yeah also the fascination with sin. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a book that's fascinated with yeah. sin yeah. Um, in every like manifestation. And, you know, I think also the people in the book think of themselves as bad. Julia says to him, I mean, one of the one, of the, one thing we haven't talked about is so at the very, so near the end of the book, Julia, with whom Charles has had this affair for two years, and it seems that everything is proceeding apace for them to have the, the happy ending, you know, the ending of the comedy rather than the tragedy, um, where, you know, the, the houses will be united and, and they will, they've, they're getting their divorces. Right, it almost they're seems going to be they're going to live in Brideshead, actually. It really does. It seems that they're going to live in Brideshead. Everything is falling into place for sort of the traditional, a, a kind of twist on the traditional marriage story where they get the family home and they get their love and their happiness. But Julia's father's di- father, who's a skeptic, not a true believer, dies. And as he's having the last rites, he crosses himself. And um, 
it's kind of a sign that she's been looking for. And even Charles watching him has been looking for a sign and wants to see a sign in the face of death. And I think this is really a book about death, too, and, and confronting death and, and loss, particularly loss of parents. But after that, Julia says, I can't be with you. And it's not that she's becoming, you know, kind of the like Michelle Pfeiffer character in Dangerous Liaisons. You know what I mean? It's She's like, I'm bad and I'm probably going to continue to be bad, but I can't. I can't be bad in this particular way. Like, I can't marry you because that would be a kind of sin that goes so profoundly against God. And I need to kind of keep having my own sins. Um, so that... Well, she can't I mean, have I, a happy ending. About, I think she, she can't give herself well, she, she's that She's like, I just, I can't, I'm going to keep going, but my sins will be what they are. But this right. one... Well, there's sort of a personal sense, but in yeah. order to... I mean, their their marriage couldn't be legitimized by the Catholic Church. Exactly. So exactly, uh, and that's I think that's the uh, that's uh, the, the crux of her concern. Exactly, exactly. That the other sins she might perform, she might enact, are ones that she can confess and be forgiven for. But exactly, this is something outside of the church, and it's directly in the face of God. She says right. something like that. Yeah. But just to go back to the, I mean, Troy, you were talking earlier about art and the sort of Anthony as a secular conscience of the book. And what did you make of that strain in the book of of the architectural painting and the kind of, uh, you know, undergraduate conversations about Roger Fry and I don't know. Um, Well, I think uh, partly, importantly, and I I don't know if we're giving uh, sort of enough sense of it. This is a book about a house, about the romance of a house, about how a house might or might not be a home, about people who sort of exile themselves from this house uh, for various reasons, and about sort of this particular grand English castle as a representative of um, sort of what Waugh felt was a way of life that was being destroyed and falling apart. A heritage, really, yeah. A lot of the aesthetic talk I find sort of interesting is someone with like a casual interest in sort of the period and sort of um, schools of aesthetic theory were in fashion at the time. And also, I'm going to, I'm again going to quote Martin Amos here. There's there's a way in which um, some of the book's bits about art are uh, perhaps a defense of the problems in the novel and perhaps Mm -hmm. a confession of them. This is Martin Amos. Bad art is, of course, a major theme in Brideshead Revisited. The book would be without much of its staying power if Waugh hadn't hedged his, his bets in this way. Writer's artistic talent is seen in terms of his infatuation with Brideshead itself, in terms of connoisseurship of English charm. It was an aesthetic education to live within those walls, says writer. This was my conversion to the Baroque. It was Waugh's conversion, too, but to the Baroque in its decadent, bastardized literary form. Quote, I've been here before. The opening refrain is from Rossetti, and much of the novel reads like a golden treasury of neoclassical cliches. Phantoms, soft airs, enchanted gardens, winged host, the liturgical rhythms, the epic similes, the wooziness. Waugh's conversion was a temporary one, and never again did he attempt the grand style. Certainly the prose sits oddly with a coldness and contempt at the heart of the novel, and contributes crucially to its central imbalance. I think that what Amos calls coldness and contempt, I, I think, touches on, on what Katie was talking about, the darkness and nihilism. I mean, I guess I, don't, I wouldn't want to end with that because I think it's the central imbalance and the, you know, what we keep calling the strangeness of this novel is also its greatness. Like, I think that the contradictions and the way, I mean, I agree that there's something 
uncomfortable about it and that there are certain parts of it that feel like they don't work together in certain ways, but that um, there's something interesting in this book um, that, and I love all, I love Handful of Dust, I love lots of other wall as well, but it, this is a different type of project and I think some of the, something that's interesting here comes in that, in the contradiction in, in, in the, the sort messiness. of electricity and in the messiness and yeah. in, the, in the sort of yeah. juxtaposition of these weird things right. and, um, and I think the continuing popularity of this book also is sort of interesting, I mean Again, that there's a new movie. There's been other movies. There's mm-hmm. a, this is what this is the wall book, you know, the sort of most read wall book. Is it possible that the book is popular for the wrong reasons? That because this is the the most, it it's, it doesn't have the the kind of unrestrained viciousness and kind of uh, gleeful misanthropy of his other books. But it and does have it does have lots of unrestrained viciousness and gleeful misanthropy in it. Like, for yeah, instance, the does. scene where his father tortures his friend right. by <laughs> pretending that he's an American when he comes. There are oh, all God, kinds of, like, right, right. classic wall viciousness. Uh, that's true. It's true. But it's, it's, it's mitigated by a kind of a prettiness that's but, – but, but it's, it's mitigated by some beauty, by a really piercing sense of nostalgia, and also by the, this kind of inflated prettiness, uh, what I would – say has some relationship to sentimentality in which well, it has a, a higher market value than uh, misanthropy generally. Yeah. I mean, it is it is the case, I think, that this is, I mean, I understand the use of the word imbalance or these other things. It is the case that this is a novel that seems stitched together. How I would describe it is it almost seems stitched together of passages from different genres. You know, there's something unusual about a passage like that one about youth, which is so kind of high romantic in a certain way, inflected by nostalgia or a kind of gauziness or, you know, I mean, just the the, ex- the the use of rhetorical devices like exclamation and hyperbole, which doesn't sit that well with the kind of intensely precise caustic exchanges of the father and the son when they have their detente, you know, in London over the dinner table. But it is interesting that, nostal- you know, you think about nostalgia. Nostalgia really comes from the Greek word for homesickness. And that is what this book is, I think you're absolutely right, Troy, that's what the book is about. It's about a home and the home as a symbol, a sort of synecdoche for this larger way of life that's being lost. And and being lost, this is a book written during the war, as Katie was saying before, and you think about what that might have been like, that sense of how precarious everything is, and it starts to account for some of the peculiarities of it. You know, Troy, you ask whether it could be popular for the wrong reasons. I think definitely. I mean, I think that that sort of wrong and right at the same time. I mean, I think part of the, like, um, elegiac mourning of this this world of England that's being lost, that's something that people respond to. It also makes it incredibly susceptible to um, cinematography, yeah. <laughs> right? Because it's basically so much <laughs> about these textures of the clothes and the beauty. And he goes on and on about, you know, Julia's haircut and her spidery style, her, her spidery frame that was so stylish at the moment. And there's this kind of, you know, rubbing the gilt lamps as if to bring out the genies of the past, you know, and... Um, I I go back and forth. I mean, that does seem to me to be a form of sentimentality, but it also is something that a novel can do, right? Conjure up this. I don't know. I mean, I just think this is like the darkest sentimental book in the world. If it is is a sentimental book, I mean, it is a pretty dark book with like no real, I guess... I, I would think this is a book more about sentimentality than well, a book that yeah, is yeah, sentimental. But right. is, isn't, is, right. is there not a way in which it's, it's kind of sort of cheap that 
Sebastian, who's fundamentally sort of a drunk and a layabout, uh, and his father, who's given himself over to chasing a dancing girl and just sort of enjoying his money, uh, and Julia, who's sort of largely frivolous, have these have this kind of religious conversion. What have they done to earn it? You know, there's something a, a bit cheap there. Yeah, I no. guess I'm just I, I don't I'm not convinced by the religious conversion aspect. I think it's just a new form of unhappiness. They enter into interesting. a new form of unhappiness. I also think right. I mean by well, the way, that, you know, just as someone who's lived closely with like drug addiction and alcoholism, I think this is a very realistic portrayal yeah. of alcoholism. I did think um, it was. A, I mean, I excellent. like I know what it's like to have a family member who's like that, and it is exactly like that. Right. Yeah. And there's something kind of amazing about yeah. that those scenes I was going, um, and yeah. that and that portrayal I was going to say that too that um, like you I've lived closely with it and I um, yes the kind of the the, pers- the family gathering around to kind of you know keep certain things from you know to sort of ban the cognac tray and the endless kind of little machinations and the and the willingness to self deceive he captures perfectly the family member's willingness to self deceive about what's really happening and and also what it's like to be sort of romantically involved with somebody who is just lying all the time and sort of hiding something, right? right. Um, and there's some, there's funny, I mean, I, one thing we didn't talk about either is that, you know, there are these moments where he's, uh, there are these little flashes of, um, of Waugh kind of protesting certain kinds of determinism, certain kinds of like psychological determinism and certain kinds of other biological determinism that are about to flourish and become, take hold in the cultural imagination. Right, right. There's ways the, that we understand right. character. The, and there's there's these, something chemical in him. Yes, Julia there's something chemical in him. He says, I don't Sebastian think there's anything chemical right. in him. And there are these wonderful moments of him kind of, pro- these little flourishes of him sort of protesting against that and, and retaining for the novelist the, the right to see character as something that comes out of a more complex relationship to the world and the, the sense of grace or tenderness, which doesn't even need to be um, a religious feeling. It can be a more kind of ontological, like who are we as beings and what brings us there. But let's go back just for a sec before we before – we ra- oh, Troy, go ahead. Oh, no, I was – well, maybe you're going back to the same place I wanted to, to, to pick another fight with Katie, to, mm-hmm. to wonder how it is that you think that – so you don't think that – Sebastian and Charles were having sex. That's where I was going to go. Yeah, good. I want to talk about that. <laughs> Let's go to the sex I, part of the conversation. Um, strangely, I, I, ha- I haven't given it a huge amount of thought. I just took for granted that it was in the genre of this sort of intense college romantic relationship and whether or not they were actually sleeping together is not that important to the plot. I got to say I thought they were. <laughs> I think that there's no question yeah. that they are. Because they're sort of the naked sunbathing. There are a couple of other moments. There's a moment where Charles, where, where the Lord Marshmain's um, lover, Kara, sort of says to him, there's nothing wrong with having this kind of relationship, but it must come to an end, sort of. You know, she sort of and he gets a little bit embarrassed. And he's so withholding that I thought, well, we're supposed to take, we're supposed to understand that there's... Th- there is a physical relationship. There the is rooms the are moment where he talks about the head, consummation you know? of his relationship with Julia. Yes. Where he says, this is the final thing. Right. Which sort of suggests that he wasn't sleeping with Sebastian because it sort of says here was the consummation of this relationship he was having with both of these two people. That That's part of the same right. relationship. It's possible. That's the only Maybe that's they the just only, messed like, around. textual evidence. <laughs> I can say that he no, but I mean, he, he actually right. does make that suggestion right. that, that consummation 
is the moment where you know it's sort of both her and Sebastian enacted in this act, in this moment. Well, I, I mean, I would but say I don't that think it matters particularly for the book, frankly. Whether really? or not they were sleeping together. I mean, they had this intense romantic relationship. Whether or not they were sleeping together, in a physical sense, that doesn't. I mean, right, know. right, right. Well, I, I don't. Yeah, I, 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 I don't care whether or not they were fucking, but the, the. <laughs> I mean, whether or not it's physical, but, the, but their their friendship, yeah. you know, sort of transcends the um, platonic. I agree yeah. that the trans- friendship transcends the platonic, but I just don't know whether how that actually works in the physical world. I mean, you can be physically in love with somebody. And right. I'm, I'm glad that I don't. Yeah, it was quite bad at sex scenes. Um, and yeah. when when he writes um, Charles's sex scene with Julia here, he does. You know, so writes about her narrow loins, which again sort of points towards uh, uh, man love in a, a narrow yeah. loins. Yeah. Well, here's what he says, and I can read it either way, actually. Um, so he says, "It was no time for the sweet. They're they're having sex in this ship, and there's a storm, and so it's all a little bit hard to." organize, I guess. So he says, it was no time for the sweets of luxury. They would come in their season with the swallow and the lime flowers. Now on the rough water, there was a formality to be observed no, mo- no more. It was as though a deed of conveyance of her narrow loins had been drawn and sealed. I was making my first entry as the freeholder of a property I would enjoy and develop at leisure, which was sort of like the, you know, home developer version of sex. But well, it's a book I, about a house. Right, it's a book about a house. No, it is, and it's his entrance to the house, quite literally um i you could read it as therefore his first entrance to the house through the The mirrors at all but you could also imagine that he and sebastian have been having this kind of physical relationship but it's not sex per se um i don't know i think i think we're certainly meant to feel that they are physical with one another somehow you know there's some non-platonic physical romantic love Well, they're clearly in love with each other yes yeah he makes right he he but and then we're ending on this Elevated. No, <laughs> no this is important. If it's a book about, if it's a book about love and friendship, it's it's, love. Would it matter in in Anna Karenina whether about or not class and social status and entrance to right? It would matter in Anna Karenina. It does matter in Anna Karenina whether or not. Um, all right. Well, I, I I guess it matters. Um, I just don't think there's like an answer in the text itself. We're not going to find no. an answer. We can believe what we want to believe, but I, I don't think he gives us that answer. But we believe that it's non that well, it's non platonic. The, sort of the, the, right. the conventions of his right. time and the uh, sort of don't allow him to give us an answer. But I'm, I'm right. I mean I'm I'm looking at at my book uh, and page. This is the 1944. The 1944 yeah. in the Back Bay Books paperback edition. Uh, Charles is looking back at his uh, sort of first. Afternoon at at Brideshead, um, and there's a there's a section in um, in chapter one of book one that that ends. That day was the beginning of my friendship with Sebastian, and thus it came about that morning in June that I was lying beside him in the shade of the high elms, watching the smoke from his lips drift up into the branches. There's I, there's a sensuality there. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a sensuality there. Yeah, it's certainly not platonic. It's certainly romantic. I I presumed that there was a kind of set of niceties, conventional niceties, that prevented him from from making it. And I thought, actually, no, he didn't want to make it explicit. He wanted that to be a little bit, you know, what, just not in the text, what, whether, like, a clear answer. We're in the same way that it is clear with Julia, what, what happens. 
but I I believe that they were having asexual relations. Well, Katie, Troy, thank you so much for being here today to talk about Brideshead Revisited. This has been great. I want to keep talking to you. I feel there are other things in the book like Cordelia that we haven't touched on that we, we should have and, and will in our in our future. The next book, the audio book club, will be discussing is Curtis Sittenfeld's American Wife, which is due out in bookstores at the end of August, and our book club will run around that time. For Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke, Slate's culture critic. Thank you so much for joining us.